Bible just a compilation of human writings about human perspectives on a mythical God? Do you ever have doubts when you pick up the scripture? <laughs> Frederick Beekner said this about doubt. <clears throat> he said, if you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are like ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. That's an interesting quote. That's an interesting look at what doubt and faith is all about. And uh, we're in this series called Room for Doubt. It's really good to see you here this morning. If you're a guest, we're delighted that you're here. We're into this series, uh, and, and we've got more to go. I hope you'll continue to join us for the rest of this series. This morning, we're going to take a look at the Bible. Now, last week, I said something about you can't just use the Bible when you're talking about trying to convince somebody of, about God's existence. And that's true. But there are things in the Bible we need to know, and it's important to know whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. Once again, this is just a glance this morning, folks. Hey, you cannot take a 25, 30-minute sermon and uh, expect to answer all the questions that have, well, been plaguing us for a long, long time, that have divided families, friends, and nations for 2,000 years, to be exact. So, hopefully what I'll do this morning is just kind of whet your appetite to dig a little deeper and to get into research yourself. Hopefully, you'll discover that this best-selling book of all time translated into 1,400 languages more than any other book in history is more than just a book, that it really does hold something unique. It is God's revelation to us. You see, there's too much at stake to ignore this. To be ambivalent is not an answer. Fall on one side of the fence or the other, and I hope you will fall on the side that I believe the evidence points to, that this is from God to us. When Charles Dickens wrote his classic, A Christmas Carol, the first edition sold for five shillings, or about $30 in today's equivalent money, which, which would be about the price of a hardback book if you went to the bookstore to buy it. In 2011, Sotheby's auctioned off a first edition of A Christmas Carol, and it brought just over $5,800. Not bad for a first edition. At that same auction, they also sold a first edition Christmas Carol book with Charles Dickens' autograph in it. That one sold for $281,000. It's amazing the difference that an autograph makes. Now, the Bible claims to be God's revelation to us. His autograph, so to speak. And if that's true, that means it's incredibly valuable. If it's not true, then that means the Bible is one of the greatest hoaxes ever perpetrated on the human race for all time. This means we've got to dig and figure it out. You see, the Bible claims to be inspired. Inspired means God breathed. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible also uh, claims to be a living oracle. Now you say, oracle? What is an oracle? An oracle means as if the very voice of God has been reduced to print. The voice of God in print. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living, living and active. It's that oracle, it's the voice of God reduced to print. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's pretty powerful stuff if it's true. 
Now, many today seriously doubt the veracity of the Bible, reading it as if it's, well, fictional, reducing it to just one of many mythical religious writings out there, claiming, by the way, many do, that the Bible actually plagiarized from some of those other ancient religions, which then makes it at best very suspect. So, let's take a look at some of the challenges that we have with regard to the scriptures this morning. And in the interest of time, we'll probably just mostly look at New Testament stuff. A lot of, lot of stuff to plow through, so, so hang on, all right? Here we go. First challenge, the New Testament was written too late to be reliable history. The claim sort of goes something like this. The New Testament wasn't even written until a couple of centuries after Christ, during which time all kinds of legends, myths, and misinformation slipped into the narrative. It's just not reliable. All right, you need to know something. If that's true, I would be very skeptical. If that were true, I'm pretty, well, I have no doubt. I would not be standing up here before you this morning. I would not be in ministry, and I would not be a preacher. Because I would have absolutely no foundation to stand on if somehow this had been written centuries later with all kinds of gobbledygook in between. You see, here's something I've learned about human nature through the years. And that is sometimes we want to believe something so badly that we'll accept all the hype at face value. Somebody says it, well, it must be true. It was said. I read it on the internet after all. And that goes both ways. It goes both ways for the believer. It goes that way for the skeptic. We want to believe the hype if it supports what we want to feel or believe. Man walked uh, over to his neighbors and he said, hey, I just bought a new hearing aid and they tell me it is going to be fabulous. They say it is the best one on the market. They guarantee that I'll hear every word clearly, every sound clearly. It cost me $25,000 and they said it will be worth every penny. The neighbor was impressed. The neighbor said, wow, what kind is it? He said, it's about 145. <laughs> hype is just that. It's hype. So we must take the time to investigate just as any investigator would do at a crime scene. Usually there are four or five possible answers for the crime scene. But the, the deeper that the investigator goes, the ones that don't work are eliminated. So don't just accept the hype. It, it's going to be worth its price. Well, maybe not. Do your digging. Do your investigative work. If you believe it, do investigative work. Know why you believe it. If you don't, do your investigative work. Dis determine why you don't or maybe be convinced it's worth a second look. In truth, <clears throat> what do we know about the writings of the New Testament? Well, in truth, the events recorded in the New Testament are basically primarily focused on direct eyewitness testimony. Did you realize that? For example, the Apostle John, who wrote the fourth gospel, three letters to the ancient church, and the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, made it clear that he was simply reporting what he had firsthand observed. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 says this, From the very first day, we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, we saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. John's saying, this isn't something I made up. This isn't something I got from somebody else. I was there. 
Other portions of the New Testament were compiled by writers who got their information directly from eyewitnesses. Those writers would include historians like Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and as I've mentioned before, actually wrote more New Testament words than any other New Testament writer. Luke was a Gentile, but he interviewed all these people. He was a doctor. He was a scholar. He was, well, he was exact in what he wrote. And this is what Luke introduces his gospel with. In chapter 1, it says, So many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of Scripture and history that took place among us. Using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. Since, now listen, I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning. I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. Do you understand what Luke is saying? I have made careful search, research, I've checked it all out, I've double-checked it. I want you to have no shadow of a doubt that what you're reading is true and accurate. Are those claims verifiable? I, I believe this is not the stuff of hearsay or legend. These are recorded eyewitness accounts that, by the way, were written, were written down soon after the events within the lifespan of those who personally knew Jesus. Even skeptical historians today will agree that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written down by the, before the end of the first century, most likely by 70 A.D. And here's something else to chew on. Have you ever noticed how the book of Acts ends? When's the last time you read the last few verses of the book of Acts? It just kind of, boom has the most abrupt ending ever. There's no they lived happily ever after kind of an ending in the Gospel of Luke. It says, Paul was still under house arrest and preaching to those who'd listen. Boom, it's over. And you think, well, what happened to Paul? How'd the trial go? What do we know about Paul after this? Luke just stops. I don't know why it stops there. Maybe Luke's opportunity right was taken away. We don't know. All I'm telling you is that at the time, Paul was still alive. It wasn't until a couple centuries later when Eusebius is writing his history, looking back at this time, he gives us the details of Paul's death, which occurred in about 65 AD, give or take. Which means, if the apostle Paul died in 65 AD and Luke ends his narrative with Paul still preaching under house arrest, that the, the, the gospel of Luke, which preceded Acts, and Acts had to be written before 65. So I'm thinking that this is probably about 60 A.D. Pretty important stuff to realize. And you say, yes, but do we really have evidence to support that claim? I mean, how do we know that the Bible was written when it was written? All this kind of stuff. Well, that, that's a really good question. Because the Bible could claim anything without verification. So we need to understand, is what we have really accurate? Well, there is textual evidence. I mean, how do we have our English Bibles? To be sure, we have no handwritten original. There, there is no letter that was actually penned by Peter or Paul or Luke or others, okay? But we do have copies of those originals that are incredibly reliable. The earliest of which goes back to about 125 AD, which is only about 25 or 30 years after the last New Testament book was written. That's, that's incredible when you're talking about over a period of 2,000 years. 
And, and, and we have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than, than anything else in history. Probably everything else in history added up doesn't even come close. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have more than 5,000, more than five, actually more than 5,500 Greek copies, 10,000 Latin copies, 9,000 other earlier versions giving scholars a total of over 24,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament to compare for veracity. There's nothing in history that even begins to compare to this. Do you know what the second most documented ancient book is? It is Homer's Iliad. Do you know how many copies we have of Homer's Iliad? 643. And the oldest copy is separated from the original writing by 500 years. How many copies of Caesar's writings do we have? 10. Plato, 7 copies. Aristotle, 49 copies of any one work. The New Testament, 24,000 copies. I'd say that's pretty reliable. Are there any discrepancies? Yeah, there are a few. Between all the evidence, there are some 40 lines of the New Testament script that are in question. Many involve a misspelling, a different number, or something of that nature. In the case of the Iliad, do you know how many lines of question there is between the manuscripts? 764 lines. Here's the important news. Not one of the discrepancies that we find in the ancient text impacts any doctrinal statement or any promise of God. The most obvious contention is the story of the woman that was taken in adultery and brought to Jesus. And, you know, he's drawn in the sand and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all walk away. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That beautiful story, that doesn't appear in some of the ancient manuscripts. That's the bulk of where the discrepancy is. But here's the, here's the news about that. There's nothing in that story that is odd or unique or different to the character of Jesus. I believe the story probably happened. Why it got left out of some manuscripts, I don't know. But there's nothing that changes the text of the Scripture, the intention of the Scripture, if that story is included or left out. Here's something else. There, you know, not, not just the textual uh, evidence, but rebuttal evidence. There is no rebuttal to the New Testament narrative recorded by historians, not by believers nor by unbelievers. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Rebuttal evidence. Well, let, let me see if I can explain it this way. Let's go back about 50 years, okay, in, in, in American history here. Now, that's longer. Remember, that's longer than when the first manuscript copy we have uh, goes back to the events. And that's longer than what we have at the writing of the Gospels to the very event in the life of Christ as it happened. So we're going to go back 50 years. We're going to take a look at the assassination of John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, in October of 1964. He and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back of a presidential Cadillac convertible limo as the motorcade passed through Donner Plaza in Dallas, Texas. As the limo turned off Main Street, Lee Harvey Oswald fired shots from the Texas School Book Depository, killing the president. Later, Oswald was shot by Jack Busby before he could even stand trial. Now, how many of you were alive at the time of President Kennedy's assassination? Let me see your hands. Okay, I was too. I remember it well. How did I do on relating the facts? You can say it. Go ahead. All right. I know. 
I wrote the text. All right, so. So how'd I do? Bad, that's right, yeah. Yeah, this is a time, if you ever want to boo in a sermon, you can boo in a sermon and I'll be all right with it, all right? How many mistakes were in that narrative? Five, somebody, you're exactly right, there were five. Can you, t can you name them off for me? Date, number one, okay, what, what, about, what about the date? Okay, it was November, not October, what year? 63, not 64, what else was wrong? Okay, it was a Lincoln, not a Cadillac. Very good. What else? It was Dealey Plaza, not Donner Plaza. What else? It was Jack Ruby, not Jack Busby. Jack Busby is a preacher. He is not the one <laughs> that, that, that shot all... Okay, now, now, I know what would have happened if I would have just gone straight on through the sermon. I heard some of the murmuring while I was reading. But you would have been kind enough and you would have taken me graciously outside these doors and confronted me graciously and kindly, pointed out my mistakes. Then you would have poked fun at me in the car all the way home, all right? <laughs> and rightly so. Now, here's my point. If the, if the New Testament is being written within 20 to 30 years of the life of Jesus Christ, how many eyewitnesses do you suspect would still have been alive at the time who would have said, wait a minute, Peter, wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute, Luke, I was there. I remember that. It didn't happen that way. Jesus didn't say it that way. We have no believer's testimony we have no unbelief. And don't you know that the enemies of Jesus would have done everything they could to discredit this if they could have? As a matter of fact, when the enemies of Jesus poked fun at him, ridiculed him, it was never for what he did. It was maybe why he did it on the Sabbath day because they couldn't deny that there had been a healing. So the only thing they could do was attack him on the fact that he did it on the Sabbath day. There is no rebuttal evidence. Okay, here's another, <clears throat> another challenge. The Bible has been corrupted over time. Some believe that we got our modern translations like we used to play the child's game, you know, where one kid whispers into the ear of this kid and then this kid whispers into the ear. You go all the way around the circle until the message comes out on the end all garbled and messed up and it's a lot of fun. That is not how we got the New Testament. The question of translations or versions for me is a very simple thing to explain. <clears throat> the Bible was written basically in two languages, the Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Koine Greek, which is not modern Greek. It was a very precise version of Greek that is no longer used in, in Greek culture. And then there is a smattering of Aramaic, a conversational language that was used on a day-to-day -day basis that is thrown into the New Testament. So if, if you wanted to read the Bible in its native dialect. You would have to study Hebrew and Greek. Now, do you know how hard it is for people to find time to read the Bible in English? <laughs> if I got up and I said, say, now we're going to have a class starting next week on reading Hebrew, and then after that we're going to have a class on reading Greek, and then you'll be able to read the Bible. Who'd show up? Who would take the time to do that? So, for it to be a global kind of thing, it has to be translated. Our English versions have a long history. 
The first English translation is credited to John Wycliffe in 1380. The King James came along in 1611, was the English language standard for many centuries. And today there are multiple translations. Some of that is publishing rights, but most of it has to do with trying to communicate God's word in a language that people can more easily understand. There are different ways to communicate the same truth. Now, if you take an original picture, put it down on a copier machine, make a copy. Then you put the copy down and you copy that. Then you put that copy down and copy that. It isn't long until the picture gets really distorted and fuzzy. We're not talking about doing that. Every translation goes back to the original, the Greek and the Hebrew. So if you keep putting the original on the copier and making a copy, it comes out clear every time. Here's the, here's the, here's the thought. In the Hebrew and the Greek, we have these 24,000 copies. Actually, that's just the Greek. That's the New Testament stuff. Some of that is also the whole Bible, so it includes the old. 24,000 copies to know what was actually in the original. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, it validated the fact that the Bible had been completed, the Old Testament had been completed before the birth of Christ, which means that the prophecies of the Old Testament really are accurate. They were done before Jesus was even born. Now here, here's the other deal. I want you to see why it's important that we keep retranslating so that newer generations can, can see. I don't know if we have a copy of this on the, on the screen or not, but Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 from the Wycliffe translation in 13.8. Would you look at that? In the beginning God made of naught human and earth. In the beginning God made heaven and earth. Would you like trying to read the Wycliffe version today? King James Version came along 1611. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The New Century Version has come along most recently here. In the beginning, God created the sky and the earth. And then, we, of course, we have the message that came along. And it says, first this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. Different wording. Does it say the same? It's the same thing. It, it, it means the same. God made the heavens and the earth. God, God made it. God is creator. You see, even though there's translations, it doesn't change the truthfulness of it because you're going back to the original. Okay, here's another challenge. The Bible is full of myths, unbelievable miracles, and contradictions. Last week, we explored some of what I believe is the amazing evidence for an intelligent designer who created the universe and finally tuned it. Now, here's, here's the deal for me. If there is a creator who de designed the vast universe and keeps it balanced within the precariously delicate boundaries that it operates in, then interrupting the laws that he created to do something miraculous would be no big deal. If there is no God, I don't get miracles. If there's a God, I don't have a problem with miracles. I, I, I can tell you this. If there's a God and he can't do miracles... He's not much of a God. So I don't struggle with the miracle aspect. Some want to separate science from religion totally. Science covers the empirical universe. Religion covers the questions of moral meaning and value. That works if the religious writings only have to do with moral platitudes. But for Christianity, that, that's not even possible. The Bible claims lots of things, as in the beginning, Genesis 1. It claims that God is the creator that may fly in the face of some who view science and saying, no, God didn't create it. Now, can the two get along together? Absolutely. 
I, I absolutely love what we learn in science. For me, it does not detract from God. It points me to God. Some of it begins with the perspective or the assumptions that we have. Can we answer everything? Can we make everything work together? It, well, it's a challenge. But for me, the vast majority of what I learn from what I see in nature and science points me to God. Dr. Stephen Meyer, Cambridge University trained molecular biologist said, science done right points to God. If everybody tells you that there are no scientists who believe, you're wrong. There are a vast number of scientists who have come to the conclusion the more they learn, the more they are drawn to a designer, a creator, the God of the universe. There is other evidence for believing, not the least of which is the amazing prophecies. I mentioned earlier uh, that we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls that these prophecies were complete before the birth of Christ. In Isaiah 53, we are told that he was pierced for our iniquities, for our sins. That was written 700 years before Christ and generations, centuries before crucifixion came into being. You go into the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, and uh, this is a thousand years before Christ. And this is what it says in Psalm 22. It includes this. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. It is that Psalm that also says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go through Psalm 22 and you see what is actually happening on the cross. Hundreds of years before even there was a crucifixion, a thousand years before the event occurred. How is that possible? Add to that, many of the New Testament claims were later reinforced by outside historians, such as the historian Thallus, the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, and the Jewish historian Josephus, none of whom, by the way, were believers, but they were reporting the events. Archaeology has done so much to corroborate biblical information as well. The famous archaeologist Sir William Ramsey set out, he was a skeptic at best, set out to answer his skepticism, spent three decades of his life as a Cambridge University professor digging in the Middle East, came to the conclusion that Luke, Luke was one of the best historians ever. This is what he determined after three decades of digging. That Luke correctly identified 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. He declared Luke to be a first-rate historian. And by the way, it impacted his personal life so much so that he abandoned his skepticism and became a Christian. Regarding inconsistencies, many of the purported conflicts are not hard to answer. For some, they point out that one of the Gospels indicates that there was an angel on Jesus' tomb. Another one of the Gospels says there were two angels that were there. Um, uh, some, in one of the Gospels, it talks about Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And there's another one that says there were two donkeys. And, and, and the question always comes up, how can you trust a book that can't even count angels and donkeys? But here is a helpful rule of mathematics, folks. Where there are two, there is one. Okay, so if you have an eyewitness, you have several eyewitnesses to an automobile accident and you interview them and one witness says, well, I saw the policeman go up to the window of the car that caused the accident and, and interviewed uh, the driver. And then you ask somebody else and they say, well, the police officers arrived in their, in their cruiser and they investigated the accident. Who's right? 
They probably are both right. The one just focused in on the one officer that went to the window of the offending car. You see, that, that's not hard to put together. Sometimes contradictions are, for example, the writers have used round figures of speech, hyperbole, uh, the, all, all kinds of things. We do the same thing. That's a part of our common everyday language. If I said there were 100 people at a meeting and somebody else said, no, 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 there were 102. Would you think I was lying? Or would you say, well, he was just rounding off. You know, there were about 100 people there that night. Of course. Or what if I said, wow, all of Bloomington came out to the game the other day. W would you interpret that to mean that everybody left their house inside the city limits of Bloomington and showed up at the game? Of course not. You would understand I would be suggesting it was really crowded. There were a lot of people at the game. Well, the New Testament does this very thing. When Jesus said, you go tell Herod that fox, was he speaking literally or was he using fox as, a, as an example of the character of Herod? Well, of course, it was a figure of speech, not to be taken literally. And, and for me, folks, this encourages my faith, not discourages my faith. It shows the human side of the writing here. here here's, here's the deal. If all four Gospels were letter perfect, you know what I would conclude? I would conclude that one person wrote all four of them trying to make it seem like there were multiple writers. The very fact that some of them have a slightly different perspective, that they write out of their own personality, suggests to me that these are leg legitimate writers that God is using to convey his truth, to give us a different perspective, to help us see from every window in the room so that we get all of the pictures that are possible. Now, there's so much more to be said, but not enough time. I just hope that I've said enough to you this morning to think, I gotta go do some more study. I gotta dig a little deeper. Those, hmm, I don't sure I believe that. So I gotta go check that out. And may I suggest that in your checking it out, you start with the Bible. In my youth, I got a telescope one year for Christmas. It wasn't a high powered telescope, but it was fun. We'd put it out on the driveway and look at the sun or the stars and the, and the moon at night. I enjoyed it, but like so many things, the fascination began to wear off after a period of time, and it took residence in a corner of our basement. The telescope looked nice there, looked inviting in that corner, but it didn't help give me a better understanding of our solar system by sitting in the corner of the basement. You see, a telescope is for looking through, not looking at. The Bible is much like a telescope. Looking through a telescope, we can see things clearly that are off at a distance. Looking through a telescope, we can even see worlds that are far beyond ours. Looking through a telescope, we are brought closer to things that are much bigger than we are. Looking through the Bible, you will see life more clearly in this world. Catch a glimpse of the heavenly world far beyond. And most importantly, you'll be brought closer to the one who is much bigger than we are understanding him far better. So let's not set the Word of God over in a corner as some archaic piece of history, mythical at best. Let's not just look at it. Let's look into it. Let's look through it so we can discover the one who authored it. I wouldn't mind having one of those first edition autographed copies of Christmas Carol. How about you? I'd probably sell it given the value of it, but I wouldn't mind having it. 
You see, when I see a beautiful painting, I want to know more about the artist. When I hear a stirring song, I want to know more about the composer. When I read a grand story, I want to know more about the author. And so Charles Dickens being a famous author, it, well, he's worth knowing about. But you know what Charles Dickens said? He said, the New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. 
Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.